Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we are going to be talking about scanning infrastructure as code, why it's critical if you're trying to create a secure environment in the cloud. And one thing that really jumped out to me is it's not just scanning it once, it's scanning it multiple times at the right time. What jumped out to you, Ethan? Well, scanning infrastructure of code, maybe some people think we're talking about scanning containers of virtual machines. No, we're talking about the code that would stand that stuff up. So like Terraform, we get into the Terraform stuff specifically, like looking at your plans and so on. Are you about to create something that's horrifyingly insecure? <laughs> and and Christoph really gets into it because of this tremendous blog post we're going to discuss, Ned, where he reviews a whole bunch of tools that help us with this. Yes, our guest today is Christoph Tofani de Repair. He is a cloud security engineer. So enjoy this episode with Christoph. Christoph, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Let's start with some introductions. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Hi, sure. So my name is uh, Christophe. Um, I'm a French guy, which we can figure out from my terrible French accent. Um, I'm living in Switzerland. And in the past years, I've been doing a lot of uh, different things from software development, a bit of operations. Then I've worked in a SOC. And now I'm working at a, as a cloud security engineer in a Swiss uh, software company. Okay, so your focus has really been, at least recently, on security. And, and you have some of a development background? Yes, I did uh, some Java software engineering, and I still love a lot uh, programming. I just learned Go a few months ago. Uh, you know, before that, you cannot really call yourself a cloud security engineer if you don't code in Go. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> now that's good. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I, Go is on my list of things to, to study. And it's one of those, it's one of those things like, I know I need to learn it. I just don't have a great use case for it, but it sounds like this might be uh, security might be a good use case for it. The, the context for our conversation today is all around applying security to infrastructure as code. Before we do that, I want to talk about two terms that you brought up in, in a blog post. And one is shifting left. The other one is dev SecOps. So what does shift left mean to the in the context of software development? Yeah, sure. And if we talk about shift left and DevSecOps, maybe we'll have to mention blockchain and machine learning as well. No, <laughs> just kidding. But um, yeah, so generally there's there's a lot of, of, of buzz around the shift left and the DevSecOps. Um, but generally, I think shift left is really about trying to get from an old model where you have people that design, implement, test, and um, operate some code. And then you have security that comes only at the end. And I think shift left is really around trying to get security right from the beginning, uh, trying to shorten the feedback loops that you get. So instead of having you know, um, all the waterfall kind of deployment that takes months, and then you have the, the security that comes in, uh, you try to have security included in the design and then in the testing and at every phase of the software lifecycle. Uh, this is a bit abstract, but uh, probably we'll get into more depth later. And uh, also, it's something that has a lot of hype, uh, as I said, but actually, it's nothing new. And, uh, you know, in the context of automotive industry or, or, or in other things, it has been there for decades. Uh, and probably we wouldn't have cars today if shift left wasn't applied to these industries. And uh, even for software engineering, I think the first mention of shift left that I found was more than 20 years ago. So hmm. there's a lot of, of uh, kind of um, buzz ar around it. It's something that is very useful, um, but let's not forget that, you know, it's not new and probably we have a lot to learn from some other industries as well. Okay, so the idea is to move security earlier on in the process. How does that apply to infrastructure automation and infrastructure as code? 
Yeah, so um, when we do cloud, it's a, it's a great thing because we have a chance to have all our infrastructure defined as code, which is something that we might not have when we don't use it. Um, if we go directly to the AWS console and we create our EC2 instances manually, we don't have that. So the idea is really to be able to look at our definition of infrastructure, which is code, and be able to flag security bad practices or security flaws even based on that, which is nice because it gives us a very quick feedback that something is bad, and we can detect that even before it goes to production. Right, okay, so catching the issues in the code well before it makes it out the gate and someone can exploit it in the production environment. That makes that makes sense. Right, and it's a bit similar to what you would do with uh, static code analysis, actually. Um, you don't want to only find out about your uh, application level vulnerabilities once they are being exploited. You also want to try to scan your code uh, to find these vulnerabilities based on your J Java or Go code. And really, it's the, same, it's the same approach, but just for infrastructure as code. Okay. Now, infrastructure in the cloud is vastly different than infrastructure on-premises, the way you deploy it and the services that are available. What are we trying to protect against in cloud infrastructure that would be different than traditional on-premises security? It's a great question. And actually, it's a question that we should ask ourselves every time we do security for anything. Otherwise, it's very easy to secure something that doesn't need to be secure or to secure <laughs> the wrong part of the system, right? right. Um, so we, we don't have a lot of very good numbers about that, but there is an interesting report from the NSA um, of early 2020, where basically they look at what kind of vulnerabilities they found in the cloud. And uh, the conclusion is basically most of it is due to misconfigurations mm. and to poor access control which can be classified also as a misconfiguration. So really here, what we see is that most security breaches in the cloud are due to things that could have been avoided pretty easily. Uh, so you talk a lot about uh, public S3 bucket um, because of insecure defaults in AWS, but it's also maybe uh, things that are exposed to the internet and that shouldn't be, and that sort of stuff. So we talked about the, the the primary cause of security breaches being that misconfiguration. Someone who kind of doesn't know what they're doing or just took defaults or something like that, leaving holes open. Are there other major security breaches um, or causes of security breaches we should be thinking about, Christoph? So first, I would like to shift the blame from the individuals to you know more of the companies and the way that the interfaces are, are designed. Um, if I go to the AWS console and I create a public S3 bucket, it should be very, very hard for me to do it. And historically, AWS and uh, maybe some overcloud providers, but there's been more visibility for AWS, made it basically very easy to screw up your, your configuration or to have insecure defaults. Uh, and I think it's really about uh, that as opposed to individual people. Yeah. Wait, but, but you're pushing back on, on AWS defaults as being not secure enough? Generally... Uh, right, so I, I, I just don't want to get too polemical, but um, <laughs> let's get it. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> well, well, th this is actually important because yeah. the, the, the thing we want to bring up here is, is a point of knowledge. That is, if I am a cloud practitioner standing up AWS infrastructure, yeah. it should be in my head that there are some default security posture that isn't secure enough and I should be thinking about that. So I don't, I don't mean to make it political, Christoph. It's more of a, just a practical thing for operators. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so there's a lot of way that when you create infrastructure in AWS or in any other cloud provider uh, that you can uh, screw it up. 
some of the things historically have made it very easy to screw up. Uh, typically, a few years ago, when you created the S3 bucket, you could create it accessible to authenticated users, which actually meant uh, accessible to anyone in the world who has an AWS account. And people understood this as accessible to everyone in my own AWS account. So typically for that, there was a lot of, of confusion. And that's why I say that um, it's also a responsibility of the cloud providers themselves to make sure that they have secure defaults. And it's a bit too easy you know, to shift the blame to the individual people making the mistakes as opposed to uh, $300 companies that are not investing in UX and secure defaults. Right. I think another good example of that is Microsoft, when they first launched, I think their SQL as a service, it launched with a public endpoint available to anyone by default. And sure, it was still protected by a username and password, but that wasn't a great setup to just expose your SQL server to everyone. So they changed that. Now, when you launch it, you have to give it a range of IP addresses to allow, and it blocks everything else else by default. So that's a good move on the vendor side. What can we do as practitioners to help combat security issues either before deployment or once they're out in the wild? Yeah, so um, I think something that is probably the case for a lot of things in security is that you won't be able to find all the security flows in one go. So from my perspective, it makes a lot of sense to try and prioritize what, what kind of, of things you want to find and what kind of, of flows you want to avoid. So typically, some people want to make sure that they don't have uh, too much exposure to the internet, in which case you could focus on trying to make sure that everything you launch is sitting inside a private network or has a firewall or, you know, has um, a specific set of IP ranges that can access it. Uh, some people are more concerned about encryption uh, or maybe about identity and access management. How do the access get, um, get provisioned? If I have someone that leaves the company, does it get removed automatically, etc.? So I think the key is trying to focus on, on a class of vulnerabilities, uh, especially you know if you are a cloud company and you had um, a repeating set of vulnerabilities for a few months, for a few years. I think it makes sense to focus on that class of vulnerabilities. Typically, if you've seen uh, that you have some people creating publicly available Elasticsearch clusters. Or things like that, it makes much more sense to focus on that. You know. Right, right. So first you have to know, what's the thing I'm trying to protect against? What's the security problem I'm trying to solve? And then apply that to the cloud infrastructure that people are, are standing up, right? So you can't just try to apply infrastructure blindly because that's too big of a surface, I guess might be the right word for it. Um, let's dig into some specifics here. And I want to focus on a blog post that you wrote, a very thorough post, I might add, uh, that we'll definitely include in, in the show notes. You were looking at Terraform and some static analysis security tools for Terraform. So first, can you can you set the stage? What What is a static analysis tool for Terraform? What is it trying to accomplish? Yeah, so generally, the idea is really to look at the Terraform code. Um, and parse it and see if there is anything that stands out from a security standpoint. It might be uh, you know, a security group that has been open to the internet. It might be something more complex like a security group that is attached to an instance that is sitting in a public subnet and uh, with some more logic. But generally, the idea is really to look at the infrastructure as code. code. So in this case, we are just talking about Terraform, but it could be also for CloudFormation or Pulumi or other technologies. And flag or not any security issues. And I'm talking about Terraform code, but uh, we'll get back to it a bit later. 
There's also opportunities to look at the, the Terraform plan, which is going to be uh, slower to do, but also is going to give us more context and allow us to have less false positives or false negatives. Okay, so it's kind of like a rules engine, basically. It, it looks through the code, it's got some rules or things that you want to look for, and it tries to match those rules against what it sees in the code. And if it sees something that matches, it raises that as a, as a flag. That's, is that basically what each tool does? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah. Okay. I mean, is, is it is it pattern matching then, Christoph, or is it more, um, I don't know, is it more more intelligent as it looks at things? Or is it looking like, like in your blog post, I think you gave an example of uh, a, a wide open subnet, 0.0.0.0 slash zero. So is it like pattern matching against that string to try to find vulnerabilities? Yeah, generally, it mostly does pattern matching. And uh, there are some tools that try to, have more capabilities and kind of build a graph of how the different resources are linked together and be able to do some rules based on that. Um, so one of the examples would be if you have a VPC that doesn't have a VPC flow log linked, but you could flag, uh, flag on that. Okay. Okay. So speaking of the tools that you you looked at, what were some of the evaluation criteria you used to you know differentiate between the different tools you were looking at? Yeah, sure. And I think it's something that is important when we try to evaluate things uh, is to first lay down what is important, what we think is going to differ between the tools, and then do the comparison based on that. So in this context, uh, what I found to be useful is to look at a few things. Uh, first one is going to be, does the tool allow to scan only the Terraform code? Or does it also allow to scan the Terraform plan? Uh, we have some tools that can do both and some tools that can only scan the code or the plan. And basically, this is going to define when you can run it, how easy and slow or fast it's going to be. So it's pretty important depending on the use case. Then okay. it's interesting to look at the maturity, the governance. So basically, who is using it? Uh, who is building it? Is it a company? Is it a single person that might just disappear tomorrow? And kind of where the tool wants to go and what they want to, uh, what they want to build in the, in, the, in the future. And another thing that I think is very important is about usability and developer experience. Um, so is it going to be you know, a, a single binary that you can just run? Is it going to be a Python thing that you need to install? How easy is it to use and uh, to work with on a day-to-day -day basis? Something else that is interesting to look at is how the tool allows you to build uh, custom checks. So typically, some are going to use uh, Python to write your custom checks. Some are going to use YAML. And depending on that, it's going to be easier or harder to write but also easier or harder to test. Maybe you want to write some rules and have some unit tests for your rules. Um, and finally, it's interesting also to see if the tool has some built-in checks and if they support AWS, Azure, GCP, um, and basically if you have to, to write your own rules or if you can reuse something that they already provide with the tool. Okay, okay. That's a lot of criteria that you threw out there. So I just want to back up to a few of them. Uh, the first one was the type of scan, because you mentioned scanning the Terraform code directly or also scanning the Terraform plan. Why would I want to scan the Terraform plan? What would be the benefit to me if a tool could do that? Sure. So basically, when you scan only the Terraform code, you might lack some context. So typically, if you use some Terraform input variables, data sources, uh, if you are reading from a file, doing some concatenation, using maps for each, etc., um, depending on the cases, you're, you're going to miss things. Maybe you're going to 
open a security group to something that is passed through a variable. And so if you only look at the code, you are missing some context. So it makes sense also to try to look at the Terraform plan. And uh, it's basically a trade-off because when you look at only the code, it's going to be very fast, but you're going to have some false negatives and maybe some false positives. While you are looking to, at the Terraform plan, it's going to be slower because you need to generate a Terraform plan. So you need to, to be authenticated against a real AWS account, which is going to take a bit of time. Uh, you need to generate the Terraform plan and you need to run the scan against the Terraform plan. So typically, you're going to be uh, more precise looking at the Terraform plan, but it's going to be a bit slower. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be very fast to look at the Terraform code, but you are going to miss a bit of context. Well, the difference between looking at a plan that hasn't been formed yet, and so there's some variables and placeholders there, versus actually generating the plan where now you've got specifics. When you generate, uh, when you analyze that specific plan, you see everything that's going to be done, and you're more likely to catch something. Right, and there are some tools that try to do something in the middle, but basically only look at the code, but they try to look at what is the default value of a variable, and they mm. try to emulate that. And they even sometimes support some uh, basic Terraform features like the concat function, you know, trying to get a bit of intelligence just looking at, at the code. Okay, right. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges with infrastructure is that you can't, it's hard to build a mock-up, right? <laughs> you're, you're either applying it against a real cloud environment or, or you're not. <laughs> and that, that can make the planning process a little more difficult. Uh, another thing you mentioned was maturity and, of the solution and the governance of the solution, uh, your one concern was, you know, if there's one person supporting this thing and they disappear off the face of the earth, that's kind of the end of the, the project. Uh, how mature can these platforms be considering how old Terraform is uh, in terms of, you know, I think it's only been around for five years in, in a serious capacity. Yeah, so I think we are seeing a lot of interest into this kind of technologies. Um, so if you asked me the question two years ago, it would probably be a very different answer. Uh, but now what we've seen is that basically there are a lot of companies that have a commercial offering and that also develop these tools as part of their open source contributions. So if we look at the uh, typically the five tools that I talk about in my blog post, uh, four of them are developed and maintained by a company. So um, I would say that the, the space has grown pretty fast to go from a space where you have almost no tooling or you have to do things very, very uh, manually to something where you have a good ecosystem of tools that are complementary uh, and that are getting better. A, a bunch of tools, actually. Why don't you give us an overview, Christoph, of the tools that you evaluated? Because there were, there were several, and I think there were maybe some that you decided to not evaluate. Walk us through what you tested. Yeah, sure. So first thing, uh, and maybe two small disclaimers is that I don't pretend to have a comprehensive list and it was mostly at first some uh, evaluation for myself. Um, so I didn't include first the, the commercial tools that didn't have an open source or a free version. And I also didn't include the tools that are more generic and that could support Terraform but that don't really support it um, as a first-hand citizen. So typically I'm talking about InSpec, Open Policy Agent and SEMGREP. Although SEMGREP, I think, has uh, in beta support for Terraform. But so I didn't include any of these tools in the comparison. So the tools that I included are TFSEC, Terrascan, Chekhov, Regula, and uh, Terraform Compliance. So TFSEC has been recently acquired by Aqua Security. Terrascan is developed by Acurix. Chekhov is developed by Bridge Crew. 
Regular is developed by Fugue, and Terraform Compliance, I think, has uh, an individual maintainer. Now, are all these tools more or less equivalent tools? They just kind of approach it in a different way? Or do I use different of these tools for different things? Maybe like, like a different place in my workflow. Yeah, so some of these tools are going to be much easier to get started with. Uh, for instance, if I take TFSec, it's a single binary that you can just take and run on any Terraform code without any kind of configuration, and it's very fast and it's very easy to look at the output. But it's going to be maybe harder to customize, harder to write some custom rules for. When you have some custom rules, it's going to be harder to write some unit tests for it, um, etc. As opposed to if you have, for instance, regular, um, which is going to be more extensible. So typically, you, you can write some rules using the OPA language, which means that the rules are harder to write, but they're also easier to unit test, and it's easier to, ex to make it more extensible and to write your own checks, even write something that are more complex. So I would say it boils down to the effort that you can put into it, and also at which stage you are. Maybe if you are starting from zero, a new company or a new infrastructure as code repository, it makes sense to use something that has a lot of built-in rules because uh, you know you can afford to have very, very quick feedback loops and to follow a more opinionated set of rules. Um, but if you have already a big infrastructure as code base, maybe you want something that uh, is less opinionated and for which you can write very, very granular checks to start with. Now, when do I actually run these tests? Do I, is this part of a pipeline or is it... I'm writing something on my workstation and before I even you know, pop it into the pipeline or add it to the repo, I want to scan it there. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, I think the answer is there is no good answer. But generally, <laughs> my approach would be to try and run it in different locations. Uh, and first thing that I really advocate for is that it should be very easy and doable for any developer, anyone writing infrastructure as code to run it locally on their machines. And that's because, you know, if you've read that the, the, the book, The Phoenix Project, the second way of DevOps is shortening feedback loops. So mm -hmm. really, I think it's essential that uh, as you are writing code, you are able to, to see if you are introducing any vulnerability or any flow um, as part of, of your code. Well, maybe it's, so it's not an either or maybe. maybe I, I do what you just said, shorten that feedback loop, run it on my local workstation, make sure what I'm committing looks like it's good stuff. But then I could also run an additional code or, or an additional check when that code is checked into the repo. Right. So maybe we can start from the very right and see how we can shift it left. And okay. by shifting, I don't mean it has to go only to the left, but you know, it's additional opportunities that we have to make the feedback loop shorter. So typically it could only run on your main branch every night, right? Uh, it means that the, your feedback loop has a lead time of one day. Or maybe you're going to be able to run it uh, on every pull request. It still means that as a developer, I need to write my code, commit it, push it, make a pull request. Then the next step is to run it on every commit. So I can, uh, I can have the checks before it's even a pull request. Then the next step is to not run it on a commit on my version control system, but to run it on my laptop. So maybe I have a command line interface to run it and to see uh, the results. The next step is going to be to run it automatically when, like before I do a commit, so as you say, with a pre-commit hook, um, which is basically going to run it when you have staged your code and you do the commit, and it's going to cancel your commit if something uh, is wrong. And if you want to push it even further, 
Um, you could say that it should be a plugin inside Visual Studio Code that is going to flag this as you type code, right? It's the same when you do linting or things like that. Um, it's something that has not been really, really developed yet. I think Chekhov has a pretty basic um, extension from Visual Studio Code, but I think it's a good opportunity and something that we'll see more and more. That last one you mentioned sort of appealed to me um, and also scared me because I was like, well, I don't know what the final form is going to be yet. So then it'll be flagging you because of something you did temporarily. But then we always also know that temporary things tend to become permanent things, <laughs> whether accidentally or on purpose. So maybe it's not a bad idea. Anyway, yeah. But as you said, that's that's early days before we even have a plugin like that uh, for VS Code. Right. I do like the idea of having it lint to a certain degree, but maybe not too aggressively, because I do just want to be able to write the code mm. initially. And then, like you said, before I commit, when, I, when I've staged it, okay, now do a fuller scan and, and pull out some stuff, because that should be close to the final version of my code. At what point would you try to run a, a scan against a Terraform plan? Is that something you would do at the, the PR stage or when it's being merged and pushed out to a, a deployment uh, environment? I would say it should be aligned to what your continuous integration workflow looks like. So if you already have something that is going to take your pull request and deploy it in a test environment, I think it makes a lot of sense to include the Terraform plan scanning there because basically you already have a Terraform plan and you can just uh, you know scan it. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't have any CI in place and you have to put in place a whole CI pipeline just for that, it's going to be more challenging, of course. But uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So again, it depends on the workflow, but definitely if you're running Terraform plan, that's when you should run the scan. And that rhymes. So I can remember that. That's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> now, one thing I tend to use in my Terraform code is as a decent amount of modules. And that's not necessarily code that I'm responsible for. And it can change over time as new versions of the module come out. How are these tools handling that code that's stored in the modules? That's a great question. So if you just look at the Terraform code, the tools, most of the tools, they are not going to look at the code of the Terraform module because it will be slow, right? They need to pull the module, uh, they need to look at the code, and maybe the module is using other modules, etc. So um, when you are looking just at the Terraform code, you are not going to scan the, what the modules look like. But when you are going to scan your Terraform plan, the Terraform plan is going to include any resource that is going to be created by the modules. And um, yeah, so basically, if you scan your Terraform plan and you are using a module that uses an insecure resource, maybe you know it's a module that you have just taken from the Terraform registry that is exposing a database to the internet, then it's going to flag that. And there is an interesting report from Bridge Crew. Uh, they are the makers of Chekhov. I think it was last year in 2020, where they basically looked at uh, the Terraform modules pushed on the Terraform registry, and they basically scanned them. And uh, yeah, they showed that 45% um, of it had some misconfigurations. It was more or less bad, but typically it was missing some logging, some backup things, some encryption, uh, or it was too exposed. And this was the case for Azure, for GCP, and for AWS. So I think the point here is that when we are using new modules that are coming from a public registry, it makes it even more critical to start scanning at your Terraform plan Otherwise, you really risk introducing some resources um, that are misconfigured or that are not configured as you would think they are. Okay. Have you seen anyone 
scanning modules and then adding them to an internal registry of like approved modules so they don't have to worry about a change being introduced by someone who's maintaining that module? I'm not convinced it's a good approach because uh, then you ask the question, who should approve that? And you start to have a, a bottleneck in the middle. So I would say that mm. starting to scan the plan instead makes sense. Um, but yeah, you know. Right, yeah. No, that makes sense. Scanning the plan, it doesn't matter what's in the modules because now you're getting the actual resulting resources that are going to be created. And you can scan those for all the vulnerabilities. And and if you see something that changes because of a module, you can always you know use an earlier version or you know, fork that module and start maintaining it yourself if you really wanted to. Um, once my infrastructure has been provisioned out in the world, ideally, I'm going to follow the best practice of making all my changes through infrastructure as code. But we know sometimes that doesn't happen. People go in and make changes because it's an emergency or something like that. Can any of these tools do a comparison between what exists in the target environment and what is in my Terraform code? Yeah, and that's a great question because obviously if we are just looking at the Terraform code or the Terraform plan and we are deploying that in an account where everyone has administrator access <laughs> at some point, uh, basically one of two things is going to happen. Either people are, are going to modify some things uh, that have been deployed a year ago for infrastructure as code, but now you know, they have drifted, or they're just going to deploy additional resources that have not been scanned or and that hadn't been through the infrastructure as code process. So that's a great question. Uh, generally, I think it's a different scope, um, but there are a few tools that, that, uh, that aim at solving that, and one of them is called Drift CTL. And basically what it does is that it both looks at what's in your AWS account and what is in your Terraform state. And basically, it's going to say, hey, you have this S3 bucket deployed in your AWS account, but I don't see it in your Terraform state, which means that someone has created it manually, and maybe that's not what you want. <laughs> and you know, in some cases, there are some changes that you can do manually that you would expect Terraform to see and to overwrite, but that actually Terraform is not going to handle well. Uh, typically, if you create a new security group rule, um, Terraform is not necessarily going to consider that it needs to override it on the next Terraform apply run. It might consider that you know it's a new resource, a new Terraform security group resource, and that is just not going to handle it. Which means that even if you are deploying something through infrastructure as code, and you expect that any change to it will be overwritten, it might not be the case. And uh, yeah, right. there is a very nice blog post from the makers of uh, Drift CTL on that that we will put in the show notes. Okay, so yeah, to, to boil that down in my head a little bit, I'm imagining I have a security group that I create with Terraform, and then I create, you know, 10 rules for it or something like that. And then someone goes into the console and adds a rule that allows SSH access from anywhere. It's it's not part of Terraform's configuration, but it's not something that Terraform's going to overwrite. So now I'm potentially vulnerable, and I have no idea because my code looks great, <laughs> right? Right. Okay, so that... That makes sense in my head. Um, do any of those tools also just scan the general cloud environment for potential security violations, or is that a whole other group of products out there? Yeah, so generally, it's the same. I mean, uh, drift detection is very much related to runtime security. I would say that drift detection helps finding things that are vulnerable at runtime, but you have other ways to find it as well. Uh, because, you know, maybe sometimes uh, you are not deploying things via Terraform, and it makes sense. Maybe it's a vendor thing that you have to deploy with CloudFormation. Maybe you have a Lambda function that is dynamically creating EC2 instances. 
Maybe you have an auto-scaling group that is doing to do that for you. Uh, maybe you have a bash script, you know, that your operations team is using, and that makes sense. Uh, and in some cases, you cannot use really drift detection, and it's things that you won't see through the Terraform code. So yeah, the, the set of, of products for us generally is called uh, CSPM, so Cloud Security Posture Monitoring Tools. And generally, it's a separate um, set of tools and technologies. But there are a few offerings, um, especially I think from the backing company of Re Regula, which is called Fugue, and the backing company of Chekhov, which is called uh, BridgeCrew, uh, where they try to use a single set of rules and a single tool to be able to scan the Terraform code and the Terraform plan and what is running in the AWS accounts at runtime. Now, obviously, this makes it a bit challenging because you have to think about how can you reuse the same rules to scan code and the Terraform plan and what is running in your account. So I would say that generally people do it using different tooling, um, different set of products. It's mostly commercial products, but there are also some um, some open source tools like uh, Prowler, Cloud Custodian. And I think the maturity on that will grow in the next few years, trying to get something that you can use at every phase, you know, on your code, on your Terraform plan, and at runtime, and especially that reuses the same set of rules. Because if you are not scanning for the same things at every stage, uh, then maybe you are going to end up with some vulnerabilities in production that you wish you had scanned before. So it's also challenging to maintain different set of rules and to test them and to make sure they are uh, without false positive. So I think we'll see some, uh, some big enhancements on that in the next few years. Yeah, I've certainly dealt with the issues of having different scanning tools that all have their own rules and trying to get them all the same across the different tool sets is it's maddening. So the idea of having here's our dedicated rule set for whatever certification and security we want and each tool just uses that rule set to scan is that would be ideal. I would really like that. <laughs> so hopefully, hey, companies out there, get on that and let me know about it. <laughs> Uh, in terms of writing the rules, or at least using existing rule sets, do all of these different tools come with a baked-in set of rules for best practices or maybe for specific compliance needs like PCI DSS or something along those lines? Yes, so uh, Chekhov, Regular, TerraScan, and TFSEG, they all ship with a set of, uh, of rules that work for AWS, Azure, and GCP. What they detect or what they try to find is going to be different for each, each tool. And sometimes it's going to be, uh, you know, low severity or maybe more informational, maybe more about um, logging or best practices, more than actually a security risk. So um, most of these tools, they provide something by default. I think it makes a lot of sense to review what they try to detect and to make sure to only include the rules that you care about, especially if you are uh, already using infrastructure as code and you have a big set of repositories. Otherwise, you know, um, if you run TFSEC or TerraScan or any of these tools on a big infrastructure as code repository, you're going to have a lot of findings. And generally, um, when trying to integrate the infrastructure as code scanning in something that already exists, I think it makes sense to do the other way around. So instead of excluding some checks, only start to include a few ones that are high value and that don't generate a lot of false positives to make sure that you're not detecting everything but what you, what you detect, you are pretty confident that it's an actual risk that you would just teach. <laughs> You're saying if I've got a big repo already of Terraform stuff and I just tell the tools go for it with all their default settings, I'm going to be really scared by the results. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, basically. 
Right. Just overloaded with information. Yeah. I, it reminds me of, I don't know if any of you ever worked with system center operations manager back with it's a Microsoft product. When you turn this thing on, it had like a thousand rules and it would collect logs and it would just overwhelm you with information. And it was mostly, you know, false positives. So the idea of let's start with everything turned off and then just slowly turn rules on yeah. make, makes a lot more sense to me. Well, the, well, the, the, the high value uh, stuff, pick, pick the big winners, the low hanging fruit, the things that, uh, you know, the S3 buckets that are unsecured, you know, go for that stuff. And by the way, Ned, same thing with intrusion detection systems. If you just let it go with defaults, you will be buried in alerts, <laughs> millions of them on your, even a small infrastructure. And you don't know what, what, the important things get lost in the noise. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so you really do want to ratchet back those alerts to get just the things that are going to be the the big wins. And then, right, turn up the volume a little more, detect a few more things and go from there. Is there a way to exclude certain resources from a rule if it is, if you want it set up a way that would technically violate the rule, but in, in this particular case, it needs to be set up that way? Is that something you can exclude so you don't get that false positive all the time? Yeah, and that's a great question because you might want to write a rule that flags public S3 buckets, but when you are deploying static assets for your website in the S3 bucket, uh, you know, it makes sense and um, you don't want to flag that. So generally, some of these tools allow you to to suppress the findings directly in your Terraform code. Basically, if you are writing, you know, resource AWS S3 bucket something, you can add a comment just above that says, for this specific rule, I don't want to flag this resource because it makes sense in this context. Um, and I think Chekhov, Regular, Terrascan, and TFSec allow you to, to do that. And uh, some tools also allow you to set this behavior at runtime via the CLI. Okay, okay. So if, if, I have, if it's one of those other tools and I want to just suppress the rule for this specific configuration, I can do that by specifying it as a flag in, in the command line as opposed to a comment. That's interesting. Okay, that's a good way to get around it. What about writing rules, writing your own rules? I think you mentioned a bunch of different ones. YAML is one. Uh, Regula has its own language. W- which one did you find was the easiest to use, especially for someone who's not a deep programmer? And which one had the most robust language, if you will? So I think uh, Chekhov and TFSec are the easiest one to get started with. Chekhov allows you to write um, custom rules in Python which means that it's pretty easy to write. It's pretty easy to write unit tests for it as well. And TFSec allows you to write very, very simple YAML rules, where basically you, you can say for this type of resource, if this field has this value, I want to flag it. Um, then it gets a bit harder when you want to write more complex rules or when you want to write unit tests for your rules. So typically here, I see that regular has a very good way to write the rules using the Rego language, uh, which is the language used by Open Policy Agent which allows you to do some multi-resource correlation. Uh, so basically to write some things that are more complex, like if you want to see when a security group is open to the world and is connected to an instance, and this instance is in a public subnet that has a route to the internet, which allows you to write rules that are much more complex, much harder to write, but also yield less false positives and are going to flag only things that are actual security risks given the context uh, that you are in. Um, it makes it also easier to unit test. Typically, Regular has a very good framework around how to unit test your rules. And basically, you know, you go from infrastructure to infrastructure as code, and then you go to uh, writing rules to writing rules as code to unit testing your rules. 
right? Um, so I think Regular has a great documentation and great workflow to do it. So it boils down to how complex and how advanced you want your checks to be. And also, um, if you plan on writing a lot of custom checks or if you plan to rely on what is already provided. Okay, and you keep, you keep mentioning unit tests for your checks. Why is it so important to have unit tests for the custom checks that you're writing? Yeah, and I think it's kind of um, a liability that security people have towards uh, developers and engineers and people that actually work with the code is that if I'm a security guy writing rules, I want to make sure that my rules are working as I intend them to. And for this purpose, I think it's a great idea to be able to write unit tests for them, uh, which means that you can also write regression test. If someone is telling you, hey, you have a false positive because your rule is not working well, you want to make sure that you are not going to reintroduce this again in the future in the definition of your role, and you can write like a regression test. So that's why I think it's uh, important. And I wanted to also uh, show in this comparison what tools make it easy to test your custom checks. Okay, so test your checks that check your security for your cloud infrastructure. <laughs> right. It, it sounds like uh, turtles all the way down, but it does make sense. You want to unit test your, your tests to make sure they're doing what you expect them to. You don't have those false positives. I'm curious, looking at all these different tools, I'm sure you thought of things that the tools don't do yet or that you wish they would do. Uh, so if you could speak to the different vendors and tool makers out there, what are some things you wish that the tools did or did better? I think uh, as a first step, it's a good idea to be able to put these tools together and uh, basically compare them because, you know, competition is always good for the end consumer, right? Um, and I like to think that even being able to show these tools together has already driven some improvements. So typically, if you look at the changelog of this blog post, you will see that over time, some of these tools have implemented some new features to make sure that they weren't kind of left behind the others. And I think that's great. Generally, in terms of what personally I think I'm missing and I would love to see in the future is more integration with uh, IDE. Chekhov has already something on that, but it's still pretty basic. And I don't think any other uh, tool has something like that. Uh, so you don't have any built-in IDE integration that works really well, etc. It's also still hard to manage the roles centrally. So typically to have some central visibility uh, when you have 20 infrastructure as code repositories and you are running scans on them, how do you see your findings from a centralized place? How do you manage your rules and your exclusions centrally? And typically for now, it's only commercial products. So um, I would love to see some work on the open source uh, side as well. And uh, a bit similar to that, I would love to see uh, more tools being able to support more runtime things. So typically it's thing that I think uh, only Chekhov and their commercial offering and uh, regular and their commercial offering are starting to, to do. But the idea being really around uh, having the same set of roles for the whole development lifecycle and not have to maintain different set of roles for that. So that's kind of the three uh, things that, uh, that I think will be interesting to see in the future. Yeah, I think the, the second one you, you called out there at is is probably something that's going to be mostly in the paid version of the products because that's that's their upsell, right? How do we get you under the paid version? Ooh, well, you want this special feature. You got to pay for that. And hopefully enterprises will if they find value in it. But I understand the the desire to have it available in the open source tool, especially for for those of us that don't have a big enterprise behind us that's willing to give us to throw lots of money at a project. 
Well, this has been a fascinating conversation about security tooling, especially around Terraform. But I think these could be broad, these ideas could be broadly applied to any infrastructure as code. Christoph, could you please summarize things and maybe three key takeaways for the audience today? Yeah, sure. So I would say that the first takeaway is really try to minimize the noise. Um, so we shouldn't try to detect all the security mis misconfigurations or all the security mistakes. We should try to focus on things that matter for us uh, and try to minimize the number of false positives. Otherwise, it's just going to end up being another tool that people will use, but they will actually not take into account. Second one is that using infrastructure as code, we have a very good opportunity to find misconfigurations before they go to production. Uh, so using something to scan your infrastructure as code code and plan is a really good opportunity to make sure that, um, that things get detected before they go to production. And for the third one, I would say that it's great to shift left, but it's also important. Uh, and there was a great talk about that from G Jeremy Matos at uh, OWASP in March in Geneva. It's also important to start left. So basically, if you are scanning Terraform code, you need to make people that are writing this code aware of what you are expecting from a security standpoint, uh, and they shouldn't discover it when they are scanning their code. Gotcha. All right. So set the standard first and start already secure, and then you don't have to slap that security on later. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, if folks are looking to get more from you, they want to read some blogs or follow you on Twitter, where are some good places to find you on the internet? Yes. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at uh, Christoph TD. There is a link to my blog. I tend to post things maybe three or four times a year. Uh, so it's not much, but I'm trying to, to get it going uh, related to AWS, infrastructure as code, Kubernetes. And uh, yeah, that should be it. Awesome. We will include links to all that stuff in the show notes. Christoph, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, virtual high five to you listener out there for tuning in. You are an awesome human being. If you have suggestions for future shows or you'd like to be a guest on a future show, let us know. We want to hear from you. You can hit either of us up on Twitter. The handle is at Day2CloudShow, or you can fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Uh, this is for all you vendors out there. If you've got a way cool cloud product you want to share with our audience of IT professionals, why not become a Day2Cloud sponsor? You'll reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve. Maybe your product fixes their problem. We'll never know unless you tell them about your amazing solution. You can find out more at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs>